Oh, please be seated. I'm sorry. I didn't stand up for the whole thing. Um, man, I, whew. So, you all are going to have to forgive me. Man, I was uh, reading that last line, and um, I, I'm like, whew. It says at the very end, our life in Christ is indeed secure. And I kept thinking to myself as I was reading it, man, where do I find my security? And that's just not a, a simple throwaway line. That's, that's real. Like, where, where do I find my ultimate security? Where, where do I flee for my ultimate security? That's, that's a question that everyone in here has to answer. Because if it's not in Christ, then it's in the wrong thing. If it's in your looks, if it's in your job, as great as your job may be, and as great at your job you might be, if it's in your money, if it's in whatever, it's in the wrong place. It's in wood, hay, and stubble. And one of the reasons why I think I became a minister is because I recognized that one fact. Like the, the gospel just so grabbed a hold of my heart, mind, and soul, where I came to a point where I realized, yes, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not anything enough unless everything and who I am is firmly rooted in Christ. And so I just, I, I didn't want that to leave and flow past you because, listen, I've, I've been in church long enough to know that we forget that. I've been in church long enough to know we sing things like that and we're just kind of singing past a song. But every now and then you need to pause and understand what these songs are saying because within these songs is like rich theology. And it's communicating something to you as the people of God. And that's simply this, where are you finding your security today? That's not the message that I came with today, but it might end up being the message that I preach, which is often uh, the case. But um, just wanted to point that out, and I hope that's a blessing to you, especially for those of us that struggle with insecurity, um, that's often trying to find security within ourselves. We don't have to. We could find it in Christ. What a wonderful song. Thank you to our musicians. Thank you for all of those that... Um, that put together the worship, all the hands that do that, um, it is having a material impact within the life of our church. Amen? Praise the Lord. Um, something I want to say, I had, a, I had a thought recently, just something I want to share for you, with you. Some of you may not know this, but four years ago, I was on a roof in the Bahamas right after a hurricane, and I was putting a tarp up, and I got a call. And I didn't answer it because it's always dangerous to answer your phone while you're on top of a roof. Um, but when I answered it later, there, I heard a voice, and the voice said, hey, my name is Brad Voiles, and I'd like to um, talk to you about possibly coming to CVPC and interviewing for um, the pastorate. And, and I couldn't believe it that I remembered that uh, was roughly around this time and I've been so surprised at, this, at the way God has worked and moved. And, and it really has nothing to do so much with us as opposed to just being faithful. My, my vision for ministry is simply this. If you proclaim Christ and you rest on the Spirit, God will do the rest. Amen? And look what God is doing in and through this congregation and the way he's blessing this congregation. I thank the Lord 
um, for, for you all calling me and for me being obedient and coming. And I want you all to know that I love you all. I pray for you all often. Um, it has been a joy and privilege to be a pastor. I, I tell people all the time, I just wish I was a better pastor. You know, that, that kind of thing, because you all need someone who, who really loves you and, and brings the word of God to you, but also shepherds your heart as well. And so thank you all so much for that. It is certainly a joy and privilege to come here every Sunday and open up God's word and communicate it to you and be humbled by the reality that I don't always do that perfectly, but God somehow MacGyvers whatever I say um, into uh, what needs to be say, said and is a blessing to your heart. Some of you, if you don't know what MacGyver is, look it up. Um, it'll be an absolute blessing uh, to your heart, I promise you. <laughs> It's not, not like the word of God blessing, but, uh, but still, Richard Dan Anderson had the picture up and everything. Um, amazing. Uh, that's, that's MacGyver, by the way, for those that don't know. His name was Richard Dan Anderson. Um, so anyway, I digress uh, away from what I was here for. Um, let's read God's word. Ephesians chapter 2. I, I told you we'll be in this for about three weeks, and I want to be faithful to that. The first week... Um, basically, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 is all about the power of God. It's about telling you what the power of God is. And, and Paul does that through a series of contrasts. And the first contrast we looked at last week was he brought us out of death to life. And we're going to look at another contrast again today. And then next week, we'll look at the final one. Um, I told you to write on top of this section, locus classicus, meaning a classic text in God's word that talks about our status before God. It talks about the reality of God's grace toward us. And you should really try and study this on your own. I mean, I really believe that and really think that you'll mine so much treasures out of this passage. So uh, without any more preamble, um, let's dive into this beautiful text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The law flashes as grass, and the glory of man as a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen. And amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that indeed this is your word. This is your truth. And so I pray now that you might connect your word and your truth to your people's heart. Holy Spirit, come now and 
um, free us from the bondage of sin, convict us of our need for you, and may we flee to the cross always to find our security, our hope, our joy, our peace. Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's go uh, and look at the second of the contrast, these before and after pictures that Paul gives us. And I want you to notice in verse number three, at the very end of the verse, it says, and were by nature children of wrath. And I want you to underline that. And I want us to ask a question. Um, It says, we're by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath is he talking about? The context seems to suggest it's the wrath of God. Now, let me say, uh, today is a beautiful day. You look outside, and you're probably thinking, Pastor, what are you doing? It's a beautiful fall day. You look happy. The people look happy. Why are we talking about wrath? Well, um, first of all, the reason why we talk about wrath is because it's in the Bible. And I'm sorry, we we can't duck it. The Bible actually talks about wrath. One of the problems, uh, I will say, though, in talking about the wrath of God is, is um, the Bible tells us something else about God, and it's uh, God is love. And all of us in this building struggle with those two realities when you put them together. How can God be a God of wrath and at the same time be a God of love? Also, when we talk about the wrath of God, something else happens. We, we tend to get fearful as if God is threatening us with his wrath. And let me say that God never threatens us with his wrath. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible teaches us that God lovingly warns us of his wrath. And there's a big difference between being threatened and being warned. Um, One of the odd fascinations I have, at some point in my life, I want to go skydiving. Don't ask me why. It's just a fascination. I won't do it now because my children are young. And I won't do it now because I just haven't built up the nerve in order to do it. But I have watched a lot of videos of skydiving. And here's what I realized. Every single time they do a video on skydiving, you know what they tell you about? Your parachute. You need to have it, number one. And it needs to be secured, number two. Now, let me ask you a question. If they, ask you, if they tell you you need to have your, your parachute and you need to make sure your parachute is secure, is that scaring you? Is that threatening you? No. They're just warning you. Because what happens if you jump out of that plane and you don't have your parachute on? You die. And let me tell you something about the wrath of God. You can't understand the work of grace You can't understand the gospel if you don't understand the wrath of God. People say all the time, I'm saved. And I ask the question, what are you saved from? What does that even mean apart from the wrath of God? Now, look, I I understand in a room like this, you know, inside this building and even downstairs and those that are watching, the wrath of God is terrifying. I get that. None of us like the idea of a wrathful God. We're going to look at that today, but hear me today. There's no way you could understand the gospel apart from the wrath of God. You can't understand themes like saved and grace and mercy and love, all of these rich biblical themes, apart from understanding the wrath of God. 
And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at the wrath of God. I want us to notice three things. First of all, I want us to notice that the wrath of God is always justified. Second of all, the wrath of God is always restrained. And third of all, the wrath of God is often directed away from us and toward another. And this passage teaches that. First of all, the wrath of God is always justified. Again, notice Paul's placement of the statement that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And look at what comes before that. Paul begins the state, this uh, section by saying we were dead in trespasses and sins. He calls us sons of disobedience. And then he talks about our sin in light of that, that we walked that we were dead in trespasses and sins, meaning we commit sins. And then he said, we walk following the course of this world, meaning we do whatever the world tells us to do. He then says, we follow the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience, which Paul is saying now we're being energized by the devil and doing what the devil has called us to do. And then he said that um, we engaged in whatever lustful thing that we want when he says, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And what Paul does is lay out a pattern for us where we see that we were all sinners. And after he does that, then he mentions that we were children of wrath. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write down four things, because this is why God's wrath is completely justified. First of all, Paul starts by telling us, and the reason why he does that is he's trying to tell us, first of all, God is not a capricious God. What does that mean? God doesn't fly off the handle. One of the reasons why we have a problem with the wrath of God is because all of us knows the danger of anger. There are some of us inside here today, we had a parent that would fly off the handle and yell at us and scream at us and even at times abuse us. That's the vision for wrath that we have. Or even some people inside you today who struggle with anger. You know where your anger comes from. Your anger is rooted in selfishness and pettiness and pride. You know that your anger is often not justified. And so, by extension, you think God's wrath is the same way. That God's wrath is capricious. God just gets angry at us for no reason. But you see in this passage that that, that's not the case. Which brings me to my second point. God's wrath is always directed towards sin. That's the clear teaching of this biblical passage. John Stott uh, made this comment. He said that God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising opposition to evil in all its forms or manifestations. What does he mean by that? Simply this, if God is not a God of wrath, he would not be just. He would not be just. In order for God to be just, he has to be a God of wrath. And again, I know that's difficult for some of us inside here today to hear that our God is a God of wrath and he does point that wrath towards sin. But again, that's the clear teaching of Scripture. Dr. R.C. Sproul, who spent a lot of time preaching on the wrath of God and writing on the wrath of God, said this. He said um, that a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. 
and he's right. But the opposite is also true. A God who is all sovereignty, all justice, all holiness, and all wrath, no love, no grace, no mercy, is also an idol. He has to be both. For those of us that rear children, you know this to be the case. If we are all love and no law with our children, that's going to run into problems. But at the same time, if we're all law and no love with our children, it'll ruin us. And the same thing is true for us inside here today. If we have a God who's all love and never punishes sin, then that's unjust. But if we have a God who's all law and no love, then we won't have a God of the Bible. And so hear me today. The Bible says that God's Wrath is always directed towards sin. Here's the third thing I want you to know that makes God's uh, wrath justful is this. God is impartial. Notice with me in verse number three. It says, among whom we all, underline that, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What makes God's wrath justful? It's toward everyone. We have a history in this country and other countries where the government puts its wrath out only on a certain group of people, but the Bible says that's not the case. God's wrath is equally spread out towards all who do not believe, regardless of who we are, and that makes his wrath absolutely 100% just. But the Bible says one more thing, why God's wrath is just. It says that we deserve God's wrath. Notice again in the passage before that, he walks us through. And he said, all of us, no matter who we are, lived in disobedience. The word sons of disobedience and children of wrath describe how you and I were disobedient. We chose disobedience. Now, many of us inside here today might be saying, well, Pastor Dennis, how is it possible that I... I'm an object of God's wrath. I mean, I never sinned. I never did anything bad. It's not like I killed anybody. It's not that I, I like murdered anybody. I've never done anything truly bad. Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that we are children of God's wrath, first of all, notice, by our very nature. That's why. Because your nature is given over to those things. You say, well, Pastor Dennis, what do you mean? Again, I want to borrow from R.C. Sproul because I think this is powerful. He said, because of our nature, we have more in common with Hitler than we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you, I want you to like, let that sink in. You sitting down here have more in common with Hitler by your nature than you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible says it doesn't matter how good you think you are, the reality is this. Your nature is is that of a sinner. And because of that, you are subject to God's wrath. Not only that, the Bible says that we're all sinners. Now here's the deal. Most of us in this building, what do we think sin is, right? If you look at this passage immediately when you think, We're by nature children of wrath. You're thinking the big sins, aren't you? I know I did. When I first read this, I was thinking, oh, of course they're talking about the big sins. Murder, 
rape, violence, all of that. That's, those are the big sins. I call those the little brother sins. Are you familiar with the story of um, the prodigal son? In the story of the prodigal son, that's what everyone thinks sin is. Disobedient to parents, um, all the sexual sins, the gambling and the drinking, those are the sins that incur God's wrath. But there's also a different kind of sin represented in that story, and that's the sin of the older brother. Remember him? See, those aren't the sins that we see. Those are the sins that are deep down inside. The anger, the bitterness, the self-righteousness, the resentfulness. Those are the sins, the inward sins, that nobody sees that go unnoticed. And what the scripture tells us is this. The scripture tells us is that whether your sin is outward or whether your sin is inward, both kinds of sins are subject to God's wrath. And I'll also say this. In circles like ours, the predominant sin is the older brother sin. It's the sins that we don't see. Again, the anger, the bitterness, the self-righteousness, the resentfulness. Those sins as well, Paul says in here, are subject to the wrath of God. Now, let me pause and say this. That's the bad news. But you have to understand the bad news before you could understand the good news. And so here's the second thing I want to tell you. God's wrath is always restrained. First of all, it's always justified. There is no one here that will be punished by the Lord that will not be punished fairly and justly because his wrath is always in response to our sin. God never punishes anyone unjustly. He's not capricious. But the second one is this. God's wrath is always restrained. How do we see that? Well, first of all, now we could properly understand um, what Paul says in verse number four. But God being rich in mercy. What does rich in mercy mean? What does mercy mean? If you don't know, write this down. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Okay, what is God not giving us what we deserve? Wrath. That's why he says he's rich in mercy. Why? Because God mitigates his own wrath. That's the point of mercy. You all were once children of wrath. Now no more. God mitigates that. God, God restrains that by giving you rich mercy. Not just mercy, rich mercy. That's amazing. Notice what he says in verse number five. Not only do we get rich mercy, but the Bible says in verse number five that even though we were dead and trespasses, where is that? I, I messed it up. Not verse five. Um, go down, sorry, to verse number seven, where it says um, that God it gives us rich grace, rich grace. Um, and then in verse number four, it says God gives us great love. That's what I was going for. You got to excuse me. Um, underline the word great love. Great love is a sign of God's mitigation of his own wrath, how he restrains his wrath. In other words, God loves that which is unlovable. Then look at the word grace in verse number seven. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Circle the word immeasurable. The word... <laughs> I love, sometimes I love reading God's word, because if you slow down long enough, you find these gems. So here's a gem I'm going to give you. The word immeasurable is the word for throw. 
How many of you have ever been to a ball game and you see people just throwing uh, shirts at you? Or they have a cannon and they like, boof, boof, and they're throwing this, this uh, you know, what, what, this shirt at you. How many of you have ever been to a ball game and that's happened? Of course, all of us. So we have that imagery, right, of just throwing and casting. So, so here's literally what Paul's saying, because he can't find a word for God's grace. You know, have you ever been trying to, like, try to explain something to people like I'm doing right now, and language just isn't helping you? You're like, how do, how do I get these people to see how gracious and merciful and, and loving God is? I don't know what to say, so I'm going to say God throws his grace at us. That's literally what Paul is saying. He's just trying to find anything to communicate how much God actually loves you. He takes his grace and he throws it. It's like, you know, Oprah giving out cars. That's God. How do we know that God restrains his grace toward us? Beloved, look at the text. It says he's rich in mercy, great in love. He's, he's immeasurable riches of his grace. All of that is toward you. Yes, he's a God of wrath, but understand, he mitigates the wrath. He restrains the wrath. And why? Notice, it, it doesn't even stop there. Notice the word kindness. Circle the word kindness. Because it's, it's, whew, it's a word that's so powerful. Because it's so unnecessary. Isn't it enough, by the way, that God mentions he's a God of mercy? Isn't it enough that he mentions he's a God of love? Isn't it enough that he mentions that he's a God of grace? He kind of just throws in kindness. Why? Okay, what does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be kind? Think about that. I remember one time I was, um, I was going home. Um, I was, you know, I, I lived in the Bahamas at that time. I was going home, and it was Christmas, and I walked up to, uh, I walked up to, the, uh, to the check counter where, uh, you know, I was taking my flight, and then they said that all the flights were, um, there was no more seats on the plane, which they often do that. Like, they overbooked the plane, and there was no seats on the plane. And I was like, man, this is a bummer. And they said, hey, you know what? We probably can't get you on another flight for two days. And I was, like, super disappointed. And I was dejected. And everybody else was, like, cussing and swearing and tell, telling them they're going to sue them. And I was just like, I don't have energy for that. So I went and sat back down. And I also wouldn't do that because I'm a Christian, but that's, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. I just didn't have the energy <laughs> to fuss and complain. So I went and sat back down. I was completely dejected. And, and the woman, there was a woman behind the counter. She came from behind the counter, and she said, look, um, I, I have a seat on this plane, but I'm not going to take it. Um, I want to give it to you. And she said, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I could get another flight. And I remember, like, taking it from her with tears in my eyes because I, I, just, I just remember thinking, that was so kind. She didn't know me. She didn't love me. She didn't know if I was a good person or a bad person. She, she, didn't, she didn't even know like, what my situation is. Why did she do it? Because she was just kind. I mean, she didn't even know enough to like me. I could have been a jerk. That's not the point. She didn't be kind to give something to me. And man, that meant so much. That's why when I read this verse, uh, this, this word, even though the word is, is perfunctory, like we don't, we don't even need it. But God put it in there to let us know something and like just incredible about him, that he likes us. 
That he really does. And that he gives us things, these, these little things, just because he's kind to us. I mean, my goodness, it, it, like the way the gospel comes together in this is so beautiful because it explains the very next verse. What is God so kind about? His salvation. Notice what it says. For by grace. Now, he just talks about him throwing grace, this, this immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Then he explains it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, that's what God is saying. You, salvation comes by grace. Nothing that you've done, and we receive it by faith. That's also given. And then notice what he said. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is the it? Circle that. Circle the word it. And then run a line to, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what the it is talking about. Salvation. Then he goes on to say, not a, uh, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the this and the it refer back to salvation, and it's all a gift from God. Why? Because God is kind towards us. And he mitigates his wrath. Man, that's the glory of the gospel. Now, the last thing I want to say, the last point I want to make is this. God's wrath is always directed toward another. I want to point out two phrases. One is in verse number five. As Paul is saying, when we are dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then he repeats the same thing in verse number eight. At the very beginning, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, again, I want to ask the question, saved from what? God's wrath. Then I want to ask another question, saved by whom? Saved by whom? Jesus. Jesus. So follow the logic of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the same wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on us. God directed it away from you and put it on who? Jesus. Don't miss that because that is the essence of the gospel. How do we harmonize the love of God and the wrath of God? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. By the way, one of the most well-known verses in our Bibles, John 3.16, says, For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Do you see how God brings those two together? It's by his Son. It's in his son. How do you have like two concepts that are like oil and water, right? The, the wrath of God and the love of God are like oil and water. How do you mix oil and water? You need an emulsifier. I learned that in chemistry. And that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm kind of shocked that I still remember that, by the way. You need an emulsifier. And what is the emulsifier? Man, it's Christ. All the wrath that God was supposed to give us was put on Christ. Romans 3.25 says this, Jesus was put forth as our propitiation. What does that word propitiation mean? It means to offer as a sacrifice in place of another. And hear me today, it took Christ, 
It took God to mitigate his own wrath. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, what does this mean for you and us in the here and now? Well, it affects how we look at the world that we live in. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis makes a point that's astounding. And uh, I was talking to a college student uh, recently, and he reminded me of this. Zach, if you're in your shout-out. But Zach mentioned that at the end of The Weight of Glory, um, that uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about the end times. And he's talking about the reality that in the end, there are two kinds of people. The first, when we look at them, we'll be tempted to worship them. And the other, when we look at them, we'll look at them in horror and a corruption such as you now meet. It is all, if at all, only in a nightmare. So at the end of the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis is talking about two kinds of people we'll meet in eternity. One type of people will, be, will fall down and worship. Those people will be tempted to fall down and worship. Those are the kinds of people that have been saved from the wrath of God. And then there's a group of people that when we look at them, the wrath of God has been poured out on them. And then he makes this statement. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play. And this last one is particularly important for our time, all politics. There are no ordinary people. Now look at me, because this is important. The call of the gospel is that we're either helping people to look more like Jesus, or we're helping them to come underneath the wrath of God. And that's why it's so important, Christian, when we go out in the world, we understand what the gospel is so we can present it both in our actions and in our words, because we're helping them do one or the other. Now, what is the big takeaway? The big takeaway is simply this. Christian, if you're in here today, you are not subject to the wrath of God. You've been delivered. You've been set free. Praise God for that reality. But if you're in here today and you are not a Christian, Paul says this. Actually, John says this. He says, they that do not believe are condemned already. The wrath of God is not future for those who don't believe. It is present. It is a present reality. And my admonition to you is come to Christ. And for those of us that have unbelieving relatives, and I have them to pray and ask the Lord to deliver them from their wrathful nature and to turn them to himself so that they might know what it is to walk in newness of life. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your gospel. That we were once children of wrath, but by your power we were delivered from that wrath because, because of the work of Christ. All the wrath was poured out to him. None of it was mitigated. He drank the full cup. And so help us now as we go out into the world to do everything we can to make sure we are living and speaking and acting in such a way as to make people more a part of the kingdom of heaven.
Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.